0: Our preaching passage this morning is from First Peter four, seven through eleven. Would you stand as we read as I read this aloud? Again, First Peter chapter four, verses seven through eleven. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self controlled and sober minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins.
1: Go ahead and keep your Bibles open as we uh, come to this uh, passage uh, this Sunday from First Peter chapter 4, verses 7 uh, through to 11. And just a word of thanks to George uh, for his remarkable testimony. I too had heard uh, the story of what he'd been through, and for uh, a man, young man like that uh, to go through an experience like that and testify to God's grace is a great story for us to hear because we all have things going on in our lives, and it was really, really encouraging to hear that from you, George, uh, this morning, so thank you. Um, as uh, we come to the end of this year, I've chosen a one-off passage, uh, just a one-time sermon, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7-11, to and I've called it uh, Living or Live with the End in Mind, and this is just a one-off uh, sermon, it's not part of a sermon series. Um, I'm going to be starting a new sermon series, not next Sunday, but the Sunday after. I'm going to be out of the pulpit next Sunday. Um, typically, it's kind of traditional for the preaching pastor to ask someone else, someone else on the staff to preach the Sunday immediately after Christmas. But, you know, I looked at the way Christmas fell this year and just thought, you know, it's a little unfair to ask one of our guys to prepare a sermon over Christmas. I'll just do it, you know. So, um, but I'm going to take a break next, uh, next Sunday out of the pulpit at least. And then come back the Sunday afterwards with a new series uh, in the book of Joshua. Just a brief series. Uh, we're calling it Strong. And it's four, the four forgotten truths about God's people from the book of Joshua. That's in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, but this morning, it's live with the end in mind. And uh, we're looking at First Peter, as, as we've mentioned. And uh, there's a backstory to that. So we're just kind of diving into a passage and we need to know the back uh, story. So what's going on is Peter um, was uh, writing a letter uh, from uh, Babylon, he says. Uh, that is, he's writing from Rome. Uh, he calls it Babylon because in the Bible, the word Babylon, the city of Babylon, is a, uh, uh, is a name given for cities in rebellion against God. And so he says, I'm writing from Babylon, And Peter is writing. Peter, of course, uh, one of the apostles of Jesus, was originally called Simon, was given the name Akifas or Cephas by Jesus or Peter or Petros in Greek, which in English means rock. And so this is uh, a letter from the rock uh, to um, God's scattered people uh, in Asia Minor, uh, what we call uh, Turkey today. Peter was called uh, uh, Peter, the rock, uh, by Jesus because of his confession of faith that Jesus is the Christ. That's the foundation for our faith, that Jesus is the Messiah. And Peter played a prominent and highly important role in the founding of the church in Jerusalem, as you read about in the book of Acts. But now his ministry has gone wider. He's in Rome, and uh, he's writing even to those who are scattered uh, in asia minor in turkey to non-jews the non-jewish people in asia minor in turkey christians who are experiencing great persecution opposition or harassment at least from the roman empire for their faith and he's writing to them to encourage them to encourage them to remain faithful to jesus the messiah Uh, And the way he does that is fascinating. So what what he does, he basically is saying, look, you, you guys, you feel like you're exiles. You feel like you're alienated. You feel like no one cares, no one notices, and you're right out there in Asia Minor, a long way away from Jerusalem. You feel like you're just kind of nothing in God's plan, but actually you are God's chosen people. And the language he uses here is evocative of the Old Testament language of God's people. He says, you're the chosen people of God, like Abraham and God's people were chosen. You, non-Jewish Christians now, you're the chosen people of God. He he says to them, uh, you should prepare your minds for action. And the phrase he uses for prepare your minds for action is literally, gird up the loins of your mind. And so in ancient times they wore these kind of long cloaks and if you wanted to run or, or um, uh, do any kind of exercise or work hard you had to kind of wrap them up to gird up the loins to get rid of the loose cloth so that you could work. But the phrase itself comes from the book of Exodus and it was said by God to his people as they're leaving Exodus and so what, what Peter is saying by using that phrase is you're like the people of God who left Exodus. Gird up your loins just like they did. And what is more, he says, uh, not only that, you're living stones. That is, you're the temple. Now, you may be an Asia Minor in Turkey, but actually, you're the temple. You're the temple of the living God. You're like living stones. What is more, he says, you are a kingdom of priests to declare God's praises. You are the people of God that God has planned all along. In other words, he's underlining for them their identity in Christ as God's chosen people. That's a big theme of what he's doing this letter. Their identity. But not only their identity, also their destiny. Where they're going. The end. And that's where our passage here fits in, living with the end in mind. What he's saying to them is, yeah, you may be experiencing harassment, you may be experiencing persecution and difficulty, but I want you to be the kind of people like Jesus who love even your enemies, and that's how you're going to win the victory. And there is coming a final vindication when Jesus returns. Now, it strikes me, the reason why I chose this passage about living with the end in mind, it strikes me that this matter of the return of Jesus is very much underpreached in contemporary churches. You don't hear much about the return of Jesus, and yet it's a central doctrine of the church. And not only is it under preached, it is highly important that we grasp it. We who feel sometimes like the culture may be turning against us, we live in a time perhaps a little bit like those Christians in Asia Minor where we experience harassment for saying that Jesus is the only way to God or for standing up for certain moral opinions. We also need to know that there is a final vindication, the end, Jesus' return. And to live with that kind of purpose. It's hard for us, isn't it, to think in terms of the end. So it's it's an under preached doctrine. It's also underemphasized. With all the streaming that we have through the internet, through our phones, you know, you go on YouTube and you can listen to an artist who's been dead for 50 years and it seems like they're still alive. And the idea that there is an end and it's coming and the clock is ticking, it's hard for us to grasp and yet it's true, we need to live with the end. In mind. Well, how do we do that? Well, Peter here in this passage uh, gives us four ways to live with the end in mind. Four ways. And the first is in uh, verse 7. So he says, The end of all things is at hand or near. Therefore, here's the first way to live with the end in mind. Therefore, be self controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So the first way to live with the end in mind is to be disciplined. To be disciplined. You're like an Olympic athlete, Peter is saying. You're running a race, and there is an end. And you've got to be fit and healthy. You've got to be disciplined, you've got to be Self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Why for the sake of your prayers? Because not only what we say with our lips in prayer, but also the way we live our lives is a prayer to God. And if we get down on our knees in the morning and ask God for certain things, but then we live the rest of our lives, the rest of the day, as if we did not want those certain things, we say to God, Lord, please make me holy, and then the rest of the day we live as if we had no desire at all to be holy, we should not be surprised if God does not hear our prayers. And therefore, if we want our prayers to be answered, we need to live disciplined lives, for the sake of our prayers, so that our whole life is in tune, sending a prayer to God. Lord, send revival, we pray, but do we live like we really want it? Lord, win the nations for Christ, we pray, but do we live like we really want it? So we need to live disciplined lives for the sake of our prayers. And in particular, Peter uses two fascinating words here for that. First, be self-controlled. And the word there for be self-controlled is drawn from the Gospels where Jesus heals uh, the man who had uh, many demons. He heals that man. And then the Gospel writers say, using the same word, that after Jesus had healed him, there he was, fully clothed and in his right mind. So part of being a Christian is to be in our right mind Mind, it's not, not simply a matter of kind of like uh, overly restrictive control or being a control freak. It's, it's about being in your right mind, seeing clearly, thinking clearly, like that demon possessed man that Jesus healed. After he was healed, he was now in his right mind. He's got to be like that, uh, Peter says. And then the other word he uses, which is translated sober-minded, uh, it j- it just means sober. And what, what Peter is talking about here is the ways that our thinking processes, our minds, can become distracted or intoxicated by various mm, things that confuse us. Uh, it, it, can be, it can be alcohol. Uh, it can be drugs. It can be drugs. It can be the constant streaming of the, of, of the endless stream of Facebook. We're just intoxicated by it. Or Instagram, you just stream through. Like, and your mind is just... It's like it's not sober. It's intoxicated. Well, You've got, you got to be disciplined. You've got to turn it off sometimes. In order to be sober. To think clearly. To see clearly. So then you can live Rightly. So the first way to live with the end in mind is to be disciplined. Like an Olympic athlete, you have a purpose now. You're going somewhere. You're living with the end in mind. You're racing towards that finish line when you're going to see Jesus. And therefore, you want to live with, a, with discipline. And so as we come towards the end of this 2019, think, think through how you can live a disciplined life. So how, how can I do that? Well, here's one way, one simple way. Is to get your calendar out, and you know people say to me, "I'm so busy." Just think of your get your calendar out, get a set of goals for the week, organize your calendar by those goals, look at your calendar the night before, so that then you can schedule your life by those goals. You say you're so busy, but you know we each got 24 hours a day. We have to work for I don't know eight or 10 hours a day, maybe 11. Some of us have to work. We have to leap. We have to sleep for six hours. You know. So, you know, what does that leave us with? It leaves us with six or so hours. And that's, what are you going to do with that time? Discipline that time so that you can be in your right mind, sober, for the sake of your prayers, for Christlikeness and godliness. Because the end is coming. Jesus is returning. We need to be disciplined. That's the first, the first way to live with the end in mind. But there is a second way. Second of four. So first, be disciplined. Second, love each other. This is verse 8. Above all, so more important than being disciplined. More important, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. So the most important way for us to live at the end of the mind is to love each other. You know, if a church is not disciplined, there's chaos. But if a church is disciplined but not loving, there's coldness. We need to be disciplined, yes, but we also need to be loving, just to love each other. For love covers over a multitude of sins. You know, Jesus' love covers over our sins, we're to cover over the love. we're to use our love to cover over the sins of other people. You know, one way you can tell whether someone is disciplined but they're struggling with love is that they find it hard to forgive someone. Because love just covers over a multitude of sins. And maybe this could be a goal for you in the new year. To let your love cover over how someone has offended you. Now you're not to be naive, doesn't necessarily mean that you need to reconcile that person entirely, doesn't necessarily mean that you can trust that person completely, but you can let your love cover over their sins. So we just love each other. See, we as a church need to be disciplined for sure. We need protocol and policy and procedure and all the good the things like that, that that we should have so that we can be in our right mind, so we can be sober-minded, self-controlled, all that sort of thing is excellent. We need as individuals, but in addition to that and even more importantly than that, we need simply love. Conservative Christians tend to emphasize discipline. Liberal Christians tend to emphasize love. Biblical Christians are to be disciplined and, above all, loving, as First Peter tells us. Simply to love each other and let our love cover over a multitude of sins. Sometimes we can think about, you know, I, I would love that person if they would repent in a way that I define that they have, they really have repented or said sorry sufficiently let your love cover over the multitude of sins just love each other is a a goal this year this this as we look towards the new year coming up very soon a goal this year for you just to love let your love cover over that offense husbands and wives forgive each other for Christ has forgiven you children forgive your parents because you know they're not they're not perfect either Parents, your children that annoy you sometimes. Just let your love cover over the multitude of sins. Love each other. Because Christ is returning and the end is coming. And we need to live with the end in mind. So the first two ways to live with the end in mind. Be disciplined and then love each other. The third way is this and it's in verse 9. And uh, Peter says simply... Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. But see, so get this. The word hospitality means literally love of strangers. So the third way is to love outsiders. Not only to love each other, but to love outsiders, to love strangers. The, we, the, the word that in English, xenophobic, means hatred or fear of outsiders or strangers. The word here for hospitality is philoxenos, which means. Love of strangers, love of outsiders. Paul says that this love of outsiders, this hospitality is a key mark of a Christian leader. To love those who are not yet part of the community. For us to be a hospitable place, to love outsiders. And it's a key way to live at the end in mind because of course Jesus did exactly that. He loved those who are outside the church. He loved sinners. He loved Strangers, he loved those who were different. He loved them not not only each other. You see, if a church is, is, only is if a church is not disciplined, it will be chaotic. If a church is only disciplined but not loving, uh, it, it, it will be cold. But if a church is disciplined but only loves each other and not those outside, what would it be? It would be like a club, a religious golf club. It's for us. Well, that's the wrong idea of church. Church is not for us. Archbishop uh, William Temple long ago put it like this. He said, church is the one organization that exists for the benefit of its non-members. So if you're new here at College Church, we're here for you. We're here for the nations. We're here to love the world as God so loved the world. A lot of people get confused about this love of the outsider. They think it's, um, there's a phrase that's been used in the last 30, 40, 30 years, I guess, for, for a confusion that I think has predominant around, particularly the Chicago area, I've found since I've been here about this. And they think that you're talking about being seeker sensitive. This is not about being seeker sensitive. And anyway, seeker-sensitive, the the most prominent seeker-sensitive country uh, 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 church in in the country abandoned the philosophy of seeker-sensitive ministry about 15 years ago. No one's doing that anymore. This is not about being seeker-sensitive. Seeker-sensitive is an attempt to define how you do worship that meets the preferences of non-Christians. That's what seeker-sensitive is. It's saying, we've got to organize uh, how we do worship for the preference of non-Christians. That's not all bad, you know. Sometimes, you, so you send out surveys and you ask the non-Christian how they want to do church and they'll tell you, we want better coffee. Well, I'm for better coffee too, that'd be great. You know, and they say, we'd we like better parking. Well, that'd be great too, you know, I'd like that as well. But of course, if you go too far down that track, then, uh, you know, say, well, we'd like less Bible. Well, I'm not for that. And we like our songs not to have so much Christian doctrine. What? I'm not for that. Why? Because the Bible's not for that. But in response to some of the misunderstandings that seeker-sensitive movement that is now, frankly, out of date anyway, in response to that, some have gone too far and said, well, church is really not for the preference of non-Christians. Church is for the preference of Christians. Well, that's not right either. The one is a consumer market for Christians, the other is a consumer market for non Christians. Neither are right. Our worship, our church, our ministries are for whom? For who? Who are they for? They're for God. And it is for Him that we meet, and for His honor and glory, and if you like, for His preference. And we meet for the audience of one. Amen? And therefore the way we do church is defined by what? It's defined by what he says in his word. And that's why we read the Bible. and That's why we pray. And that's why we aim to be hospitable. Because Peter tells us to be hospitable. To love the strangers. Which means that we... Reach out a hand of welcome. It means that we use language that is not internal language that no one would understand if they hadn't been brought up in Sunday school here. That's, that's why we, we define what high acts means. So someone who's never been to the to church before knows that's our, our, senior, our, our high school ministry, that, that sort of thing. Well, the, the sort of thing you would do when you are taking care of guests. Like, Yeah, this is a place that you can be a part of. We want you here. That's how not to be a club, but to be a church. To be disciplined, yes. To love each other, yes, but also to love outsiders. Well, finally, uh, Peter has uh, one other way to live with the end of mind. So be disciplined, love each other, love outsiders. And then finally, use your gift. This is in verses 10 and 11. Use your gift. He writes this. forever and ever, amen. As each has received a gift, use it. So this fourth way, we've had to be disciplined, love each other, love outsiders. And the fourth way is use your gift. Use your gift. You see, church is not like a bus with the pastoral staff at the front driving and everyone else sitting back and sort of either applauding because they like the way it's done or grumbling because they, they don't like the way it's done, that's not church. Church is a body where everyone has a gift and everyone is to use it. You have a gift, a charisma if you 're a Christian, you have a gift from Christ himself. He wants you to use it for the benefit of the church peter 's saying use your gift it 's fascinating how he divides up the various gift, the gifts here into two into two categories uh, as we sort of uh, the, the varied manifest uh, gifting of god god 's very grace in two categories one is the one who serves with the stewards of, of God's various grace in two categories. One is whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. In other words, our speaking from the pulpit in Sunday school, in our high school ministries, our junior high, in our adult communities, in our small groups. Our speaking is not simply with the intentionality of rhetorical communication. That's good. You know, I, I think hard about how to express what I'm going to say in a way that will connect and, comu- and communicate. Of course that's good. But there's something far higher than that. So my, my, my ambition, my goal as a preacher, and our ambition, our goal for all of us who speak is to speak as if we're speaking the very oracles of God, the very words of God. There should be in preaching, in speaking, and in teaching not only persuasion, there should be that, which is rhetoric and And connection, not only persuasion, there should also be power, a sense of God's spirit at work. Not not increased volume from the preacher, but the power of Christ. And there should also be a sense of wonder. Could it be that when we gathered together, God himself spoke to us? about how to live for the end in mind as we come to the end of this 2019. God himself spoke to us, speaking as if we're speaking the very oracles of God. And then the other category he has here is about serving. Whoever serves or ministers or leads as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In other words, not to serve at our own strength, One of the temptations that comes, if you're a very gifted administrator, is to manipulate, to dictate, to control. What Peter is saying is, no, don't don't be like that. Serve with God's strength. And therefore, you can be a very gifted administrator or a gifted servant, but let God be God in the people's lives that you are serving as you administer Use your gift, whatever it is. And there, there's God's varied grace. You say, well, how do, how do I use my gift? How do, I, how do I do that? Here's three ways. First, ask, exercise, improve. So first, ask. Find three people that you know and trust and know and trust and believe in you and ask them what they would say about how you're gifted. So ask first. If you're not sure what your gift is, ask. Ask. Then exercise. Take any opportunity you have to exercise your gift. And then improve. Okay, so that went well. That didn't go so well. What can I learn from that? Turn your critics into your coaches. Ask, exercise, improve. And then you, you... you do that again. You ask, what, what kind of feedback do I get? Now I've identified my gift. Ask, exercise, improve. Ask, exercise, improve. You use your gift as you keep on doing those three things. Ask, exercise, improve. Ask, exercise, improve. You use your gift. And it takes all of us. You know, if a if a church if a church is not disciplined, it's chaotic. If a church is disciplined but not loving, it's cold. If a church is disciplined but only loves each other but not outsiders, it's like a club. But if a church is disciplined and loves each other and loves outsiders but not everyone uses their gift, what happens? People burn out. The 20% who do 80% of the work burn out. Or, Or the church doesn't flourish, one or the other. It takes us all. Takes us all for the for the budget at the end of the year. Every single person, you know, whether you give a dollar or whatever it is, it takes us all. It takes us all as we look at the children's ministries, as we look at the short-term mission projects. It takes us all. It takes us all as we look at, you know, the the, the maintenance around us, you know, the snow clear, the the car the the car park, the, the parking lot. You don't say car park, you say parking lot. You know what I mean, the thing over there. It takes us all. Every single one of us. We've got it so wrong, we think, you know, there's the gifted speaker or the gifted administrator and the rest of us sit back and go, wow! That's not church. Church is, yeah, disciplined, yeah, loving each other, yeah, loving outsiders, yeah, everyone using their gift. Ask what it is, exercise it, improve it. Let me uh, uh, close with this. It, it, in, it's 1968, and uh, the Mexico uh, Olympics in 1968, and it's the marathon. And the the winner of the marathon has come in in some ridiculously fast time. I don't know what it is now. It's like two hours or something like that. He won. And all the other people who raced in the the, the marathon, in the Olympic Games in 1968, they've all all come through and crossed the line. And then suddenly, the announcer says to the the massed crowd that is there, says, hold on, uh, stay in your seats. Uh, there's There's another runner still to come. And they wait. And then finally, stumbling into the stadium, comes someone from Tanzania, a very gifted athlete, uh, marathon runner. But early in the race, he had stumbled and got knocked down and he had actually dislocated his his knee and kind of got trampled by the pack. And he, he he comes into the stadium with a bandage, big bandages around his knee and kind of blood on his face, stumbling into the into the Olympic Stadium and he's like over an hour after the guy who won and he goes around the, the stadium stumbling and then everyone starts to cheer like he's, he's going to make it and he finishes and afterwards the, the journalists go up to him and say well, why, why did you do that? I mean you know you weren't going to win what, why did you keep on going? what was the point of that? And uh, John Quarry says, my country did not send me 5,000 miles to start a race. My country sent me 5,000 miles to finish a race. That's living with the end in mind. You may feel like this 2019, you're a bit like that. Your knees got dislocated, you got trampled over and like, I I just can't, I don't know whether I can live with the end in mind. Jesus is coming, you're living living for him. For his glory. Our Lord God, we do pray that you would help us all to do that, to live with the end in mind. We pray, Lord, that you would help us Yes, to be disciplined, to be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of our prayers. Lord, would you hear our prayers uh, this year as a church because we, in the way we live, also are committed to you. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to love each other, even those in our family or in our small group or adult community we find annoying and difficult. Would you help us, Lord, because we are people who have been loved for our love to cover over even a multitude of sins. We pray, Lord, you'd help us to show hospitality as a church, that we'd be welcoming to outsiders. And we pray, Lord, that you'd help us to use our gifts in order that in everything God may be glorified, that you may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to live with the end in mind, to set our goals to be Loving and disciplined and using our gifts. And so as we enter into this uh, new year 2020, very soon now, help us, Lord, to, to run the race right up to the end. To live with the end in mind. In Jesus' name, amen.